0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Coach Growth Podcast, where we hope to provide learning and value to young and new coaches. I am your host, Coach Andrew McGecky. My guest today is the one and only Tony Holler. Tony is the head boys track coach at Plainfield North, as well as the founder of the Feed the Cats training system. We cover a multitude of topics today, ranging from his early days coaching basketball and track in Harrisburg, Illinois, to obviously Feed the Cats, to parent coaches and how to handle that. And then ending with some random questions that I have, including does Homewood Flossmoor have the greatest track coaching staff in the history of the state of Illinois? I hope you enjoy. All right. Thanks everyone for joining in. I am joined by the great, the infamous Tony Holler, uh, head track coach at Plainfield North. Uh, Tony, I'm sure anybody that listening to this knows who you are. um, But just in case there's those that don't tell, you know, can you tell everyone, um, what you do, you know, where you coach and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Infamous. That's that, that, (laughs) that's a, that's a weird word. Um, But I guess I am kind of infamous right now. Um, I am simply a a, a lifelong teacher. I've taught 38 years, Um, a science teacher, chemistry. Um, I retired last year, uh, last uh, one year ago. Um, in, in a nick of time, I guess. I, I'm glad I'm not teaching through this bullshit um, of, of COVID. I, I can't imagine what's coming up. Uh, both my sons uh, today sent me pictures. Uh, they're both, t- two, of, two of my four kids are coaches, and they were out there on the field today as football coaches wearing a mask um, in, you know, like 105 in the shade type of weather. And I, I, I can't imagine doing that. But anyway, I, um, I'm a teacher and a coach. I say I was born a coach because my father coached for 47 years, high school and college basketball. Uh, I was, uh, his first kid. So you can imagine he drugged me along with him from probably the age of two on, um, I mean, basketball games on Tuesday nights, Friday nights, Saturday nights practices every day, all that stuff. So, so, I grew up talking like me and you are talking right now. We weren't talking about (laughs) about anything else. It was basketball coaches or psychotic, you know, only basketball type of people. Um, But anyway, um, I was a basketball coach for my first 10 years. uh, And that's all I ever wanted to do until I got fired from basketball. And then I became, I reinvested myself into track and field and became a unique track and field coach because I don't think I went to my first clinic till I was 40. And so I I really learned things in a trial and error, um, unique way. Uh, And and then uh, the reason why I'm infamous now is that at the age of like 53 or 54 years old, I was asked by the Illinois Track Coaches Association to write uh, three articles, three blogs in the next nine months for them. And I didn't, I was never a writer. I, I was always been a reader, but I was never a writer. Um, and I thought well, I could probably write three articles. And um, in the last seven years, I think I've written more like 250, um, which would actually literally fill up over six books, six normal sized books of material. Of course, I haven't got paid a penny for any of that. And, and because of my writing, um, Now I do some podcasts. Um, I'm hooked up with Chris Corfus and the track football consortium. And, um, and my saying that I started talking about in 1999, uh, feed the cats um, has become literally a a kind of a worldwide thing. There are literally track coaches in Europe that when you say feed the cats, they, they understand what that means. I remember
0: seeing your articles and, you know, kind of, like a lot of people are like, ah, oh, that's a little too far out there for me. <laughs> I come, I come from a, you know, a small town in Illinois where, you know, football and sports are king and that kind of like that grind mentality that a lot, you know, a lot of people grow up in and all this stuff. And I remember reading those and just, I don't know if I, that seems, that's kind of far fetched this minimalist training ideas. And then just seeing so many people and seeing success people are having. And then, you know, I was okay. And you know, it, chips away at it, and then over the years, you know, I was seeing more and more of it, and the success that people are having running it, and then two years ago, I, you know, I kind of said enough, and bought in, and my kids loved it, and it was just, you know, it's just one of those things where it sounds really crazy, and because it's just kind of, it's kind of different from the norm, even though so many coaches are adapting to that system, and it's becoming more and more, uh, I don't know, mainstream, I guess, accepted, it, it, it's wonderful. So before that, you were, your first track stint was, was that Harrisburg, Illinois, is yes, that right? it was.
1: What was that like when you first um, started? It's it, the Harrisburg story, and I don't know if I've ever said this in a podcast before. The Harrisburg story is an interesting one. I, I went to Oswego High School, um, lived in Aurora. Um, when I graduated, I went to Knox College in Galesburg. Um, I always considered myself a city guy because because um, I went in the into Chicago all the time. Um, when, when I was in, in, uh, in the summers in college and so forth. So, so when, <laughs> when I got out of, uh, of Knox, um, I, I had two offers uh, around in early June or late May uh, and, and one of the offers was Palatine Fremd High School um, in arguably the best school district uh, for teachers in the state of Illinois. And in 1981, the base salary at Palatine Frem was 25,000 and they paid for 100% of your uh, professional development. You know, I remember asking, you mean I could go to UCLA and get a master's and you would pay for all my tuition? And they said, yes, sir. And, and I was like, oh my, 25,000. I said, okay, so what's my coaching gonna be? And they said, well, we have freshman girls basketball um, actually, it's the B team, the B team for freshman girls basketball, and here I was, you know, coach. I I figured, you know, I I was a seasoned coach, even though I never coached a team before, because I'd lived with a coach all my life and I'd played college basketball, ran college track, and so so that just didn't appeal to me at all. So Harrisburg High School, in you know, 20 miles from Kentucky, um, offered me a science job with. Uh, a freshman football, assistant varsity basketball, and assistant track. And of course I took that job and they paid, their, their base salary was $11,800, which may have been the lowest base salary in the state of Illinois at the time. Uh, and and so I literally took a job for half the pay. I mean, literally I made $1,000 a month in my first year. I lived in a trailer that cost $150 a month That was also my student loan payment, $150 a month. Uh, But it was an invaluable thing for me to get to coach in three different sports, to be a coach all year round. As a teacher, we had no curriculum. They just kind of said, those are the textbooks. (laughs) Um, You know, try to figure out some way to teach the kids that you have to teach. Um, And so I had to, I was really on my own. And then, you know, I don't want to paint Harrisburg as, as just the worst town of all times, but it was pretty weird. You know, coal mining was, was the best job in town. Teaching was the second best job. Um, But it was kind of like walking back into the past. Um, uh, Sports were the only thing in town. Literally there was nothing else. And, and to add to that, there was actually an AM radio station, an FM radio station, a daily newspaper and an ABC affiliate. In, in a town of ten thousand people so so like uh, we got huge newspaper write ups um, as a freshman football coach. I was interviewed every saturday morning on 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 the radio as you know so so it was uh, for twenty three years, I lived in this strange, poor town uh, that we developed a great athletic program in um, multi sport athletes, arguably, Harrisburg had probably. I think the most success of any school of less than seven hundred kids um, during maybe a two decade uh, time period when I was there is any program I've ever seen in Illinois. So, so it was a, a great experience, but a weird experience.
0: Uh, what you know when you first start? So, you, did you start out as a sprints coach when you were an assistant in the first year? That's
1: a that's a really cool question. Um, I started out as the assistant coach to a guy that was horrible. Um, um, he would I, I believe he still coaches cross country there and he's coached cross country for over 50 years. And um, uh, so I was his assistant. And when, uh, when I was a runner in middle school, high school and college, I was a 400 guy. I was like a tall basketball player. Uh, that was not given, you know, that didn't have God given speed, even though I was pretty fast, I should have been a lot faster if I would have been trained right. Uh, So, so I considered myself, you know, I just repeated all the mistakes that my high school coach and college coach did, where I basically took everybody that was on the team, who wasn't a cross country guy, and trained them to be 400 runners. So the idea of being a sprint coach was kind of like not even a thought Back in the 80s, maybe even the 90, maybe even now for a lot of people, because so many people have grown up believing that speed is inherited, that it's God-given, that, that you can't change speed. And I, I totally agree, you can't change speed quickly. The adaptations come really slow. I say, speed grows like a tree. So what happens to most people in the track and field world is that there's no such thing as a sprint coach because people give up on improving speed from the get go. Uh, they just they take that, that freshman with, who's a pretty good runner and say, okay, you're gonna run the 400 because you're not a sprinter. And so they never develop the sprint capacity or the sprint ability, um, the max absolute speed ability of that guy because they give up on him and they pigeonhole him at a young age and say he doesn't need this he needs that and all and so all that really has gone into my present day thinking that that we we don't train kids as a 400 person first we train every one of my kids as a sprinter first unless they're in my distance crew
0: how long were you an assistant
1: uh, good question. I was an assistant in basketball for just one year. We we went we went 0 and 25, and and had our 19th losing season in the previous 20 years. So it was a basketball graveyard. So at the age of 23, I was the head basketball coach. You know, I got the head job, um, which is which was pretty uncomfortable because I was renting my trailer from the former head basketball coach, uh, who was also that awful track coach I was talking about. So he was my landlord and so it was awkward, Um, but that happens in small towns. Um, So, and then in 1990, even though we we had had moderate success, um, uh, we'd had three straight winning seasons. Um, I got fired in a situation over a angry parent and blah, 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 like so many basketball coaches and football coaches have happened to them in their careers. And because I had four little kids at home and a wife who taught second grade, I couldn't leave, you know. my My basketball, it, it was just a sad, sad time for me. And so, strangely, one month before I was fired as a head basketball coach, they couldn't find a track coach who would take the head job. And so I said, "Okay, I'll do it." So I be I became in the same month I was a fired basketball coach and a new track coach. So I guess I was a, a track assistant for eight years. And I became the head coach in 1990. And uh, I mean, within a year, we got third place in the state. And as as you know, you know, success just begets success. You know, like when, when you get good at something, you get more interested in it. Uh, the more you learn, the more you want to learn and all that. So it's been kind of a snowball effect really for the last 30 years.
0: You're obviously known as this, uh, as a sprint guy, you know, as a speed guy. But I'm assuming, you know, because I come, I'm coaching in Macomb, Illinois, which is, you know, a fairly small, you know, we have a, under 600 kids in our district and I have one assistant. So I'm assuming that you didn't have quite a large staff at Harrisburg. So <laughs> were you, co- were you, co- you know, did you have that? I'm assuming you had to have your hand at every, every event, you know, was that uh, challenging for you? I mean, were you coaching throws, were you coaching jumps, hurdles, what, you know, what all we yeah,
1: have? That's fascinating. I think Macomb, matter of fact, when Harrisburg in the glory years, uh, Macomb, was was also really good. Macomb was was one of the elite programs um, in Class A in the state in the back in the nineties. Um, so so yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think you can imagine exactly what it was. One one of my prerequisites when when they said, "Would you please take the track job? We can't find anybody." As a Matter of fact, the previous year in Harrisburg, Harrisburg did not score in the sectional. I mean, it's hard to believe after when when you look at all the success we had in the nineties and the early two thousands, Harrisburg actually got shut out at the sectional um, the year before I took the job. So nobody wanted the damn thing. And Harrisburg's probably one of the best baseball towns in all of Illinois. They actually won the big school state baseball championship one year. Um, I, I believe it was in 98 or ninety, yeah, I think it's ninety eight. They won the big school state championship in baseball, so I always said the only kids we ever got were the kids that couldn't hit. I mean, that's the only kids we ever got. So they got all the best athletes, and I got all the orphans. So you are one hundred percent right. When I took the job, I said I'll take it if if my assistant basketball coach can be my assistant track coach. And the AD said, "Well, well, he's never coached track before." And I said, I don't care. I trust the guy. Um, and to talk him into it, I had to tell him that if, if it was over 75 degrees, that he could go bass fishing instead of, instead of working with his throwers. I mean, that was the kind of bullshit that, as you probably know, that you have to navigate through uh, in a small school program. So, so he, I believe he was getting a half stipend. Um, that's it. So he worked with the throwers. And then I worked with all the runners. And so the way I did that was we boycotted the two mile. Uh, we just said, screw it. We're, you know Our cross country program is absolutely horrendous. It's piss poor. I mean, uh, our cross country program was so bad that they would have a, uh, the first day of practice and, and um, there would be no boys show up, zero no boys show up and they would have to make phone calls you know the coach would have to drop by their house and say please come out for it was horrible so we had no uh, you know basically no kids getting that great distance base and stuff so we focused on everything from the 100 up to the 1600 uh uh we hardly ever practiced uh, the field events, but what I did was an interesting thing. I had some interesting field event guys. I had a guy go seven foot, 13 different times his, his senior year in the high jump, um, Damon Lampley, 1995. Well, his dad was a former basketball coach and I literally had his dad coach him in the high jump. I told him, video him, show him the video, don't don't overcoach him, um, just be there for him and and so that was cool i had a uh, a baseball player that that played 30 baseball games and i believe he threw in six track meets for me but he threw 167 in the disc because his dad was his coach they would go out and throw on sundays and his dad i i coach his dad up once again you say don't overcoach him video him be there for him and and the dad i mean i had a pole vault guy that was a state champion uh, 15, six in the pole vault, same exact thing. The dad uh, loved it, uh, video, be there for him, don't overcoaching, driving down to Earl Bell's camp as often as possible down in Arkansas. And so we had great field event people because we, we worked through parents and all that. And then, um, and then, you know, Eventually, I I drank my own Kool-Aid basically and became a total sprint program um, from 1999 on. Those first eight years as head coach, I I was coaching the old school way where we were just tough. You know, Uh, nobody worked harder. (laughs) Nobody nobody were tougher, you know, all those things. Um, Toughness, hard work, all the bullshit that, that, that ruins sports today. I was doing all those things. But if you're a pretty good coach and you have pretty good kids, uh, you will still have reasonable success doing things that are not optimum. And that's something I learned during that time. <clears throat> Obviously now I think I'm doing things in an optimum way.
0: I'm really envious of because I have had I have not had good experience with parents trying to coach. In fact, my first year as an as a volunteer throws coach, we had I want to say eight throwers between boys and girls and we had three throws coaches and one of them was a dad who had been a state. it was a state champion discus thrower in high school and he would come and coach his son only his son in discus and just berate him and oh. and just and just you know and it was tough for me as a 18 19 year old kid to to watch that and i was you know i wasn't even paid and just to sit there and watch this kid go through that and then it, um, i had to go the opposite route when i became the head coach and became this kid's head coach. There was a conversation of dad's not coming to practice. We're going to, I'll coach you. And, you know, and it was a much better, healthier experience for him, but uh, it, you know, it is tough. Our, um, We had a, we had a, a, a dad who jumped, who was a seven foot high jumper. And so he's come and helped our high jumpers and that's been a positive relationship. So it can be done, but it's just really scary. When um, parents come up, like I want to coach my kid and it's like, yes. well, you know, that there's a lot of a lot of red flags and a lot of you know it's a tough line to walk I'll say
1: yes and I think you know I was kind of lucky you know if you can imagine I mean like when when I was like I said when I was 22 I thought I was a seasoned coach you know I mean like like I had this I've always had this air of confidence about me um you know maybe it's you know I hope it's like charisma or something like that. But the fact that the, I went through the wars as a head basketball coach. Um and you know, basketball makes a guy tough because basketball is an ugly freaking sport. Um you talk about, I mean, every parent hates you, every kid will act like, you know, oh coach, I love you, coach, and then they'll go home and complain about you. Um it it's hard to be a basketball coach, but it toughened me up. And so when I went in, t- you know here I was in my thirties, I was probably maturity wise, as mature as any coach in America, you know, because, uh, because I'd grown up with it. I'd seen the wars that my dad went through. I went through the wars. And so when it came down to, let's say a parent that, that was not handling their son well, I would not be afraid to say, um, uh, I I don't want you uh, on the premises anymore. I mean, I would literally, and usually because, <clears throat> because they respected my confidence and stuff uh they cared you know like like coach tell me what to do whereas I think if you're a 23 year old um those parents take advantage of you you know and and, and so it is hard and there, there's no great way to do it and I also believe that maybe I was just lucky that that you know that Lampley's seats um uh, um uh, Colors, you know, they all had, they all had parents that were amazing people, um, but also wanted to fit in. And, and you and I both know that not all parents are going to fit in.
0: Now, especially uh, if you try to uh, you know, if you want to be a feed the cats guy, that's something that's <laughs> really tough, you know, because, you know, dad shows up and it's like, well, oh that's that's it that's all you're doing today yeah yeah we're here that was a quality workout well where when are you going to condition (laughs) what what do you mean (laughs) well well, when when i went to high school in the 70s you know and we did all this and all you know it's like, well that's great it's not that's not where we're at and that's not how we're going to do things that's so
1: well that's one of my go-to stories um when i'm talking about 400 meter training um john hewitt who was my best uh, my best uh, athlete. When I went to, from Harrisburg to Franklin, Tennessee, uh, there were only eight returning guys. Um, you know, that was it, you know, and we had to build a track team around those guys. So I wanted to meet them quickly and find out who I had. And by far my best returning athlete was a guy named John Hewitt who was about five seven, one sixty, and looked like a wrestler. Uh, but I said, John, what'd you run last year? He said, I run 51 flat in the four by four as a sophomore. I was like holy cow yeah you're gonna be a good one man so I I knew that he's gonna be my star I said what was your 100 and 200 meter time he goes I never ran it I go what what you you, you're a 400 guy and you're not a sprinter he goes no I'm a middle distance guy (laughs) and I laughed I'm like no 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 we're we're gonna turn you into a cat my man and he just kind of looked at me like oh whatever and so so yeah, we did nothing but you know a five second six second training all winter, uh, 40s and timed everything, record rank and publish all the stuff that speed the cats. And that year in in the on April 14th, we had a meet called the grade 8 at Vanderbilt, beautiful facility. And he ran he ran basically 11 flat, 22 flat, and 47.99 in the 400. This was like our third me of the year, um, 47.99. And he ended up winning third place in the state. Uh, he got passed though late in the race. And the father um, saw that and blamed Feed the Cats. He blamed his third place finish on feed the cats, he he said that if he would have had more endurance training, he would have held on to second or maybe got first. So he um, he found an AAU coach, um, a woman who believed in the Clyde Hart system of training, and, and and told me this is one of the hardest things I've ever done as a coach. Um, the the dad told me that John was not going to train with the team the next year that he's going to train with his AAU coach. And you can imagine there's not many coaches in America that would put the kid first in that situation. Most of them would say, my way or the highway, screw you. And, and I'm a kid's first guy, you know, and I, I back it up. And I said, I I hate that. I think it's going to be bad for John. Um, But, but I'm, I'm a John guy. I, I care about John. And so John would do things like, you know, a three-mile run on Monday, 10 200s on Tuesday, uh, you know, things like that, as the rest of us were feeding the cats. And, and to make a long story short, his senior year, he came up to me at the end of the year and said, Coach, I just want to run the relays uh, in the sectional estate. I'm a team guy. I said, yes, you are, John. But the back story is that John uh, never broke 51 in the open 400 that year. Never broke twenty three in the two hundred, never broke eleven five in the hundred. He was definitely in better shape. He probably would have run a really good eight hundred meters. But but that but they we I transformed him to a cat, and they transformed him back to a dog. You know, and nothing wrong with dogs. I mean, but but they took his speed away, and so. So not all situations with parents are going to be great, but we have to navigate it because the last thing I want is for John Hewitt uh, not to run for me his senior year. The gir- Our girls coach tells a story
0: of kids that would go to her practice, and then as soon as they would leave her practice, they would go practice with the old Western coach, WIU's old head coach, and do like extra workouts because they felt like hers weren't good enough. And, sure. And she would talk about how, you know, she's like, and that's, you know, that's something that as coaches, it's tough because when, when your athletes are, you know, when you have a plan instead of your athletes and then they go do something else with someone, it, it derails it. And, you know, you can't factor in what he's doing with this AAU coach. So that change, you know, and it's, it's tough as a coach when you have like a, an athlete that you, you're invested in and somebody else comes in and changes that plan. And, and you know, these, these outside factors that you just have no control in. and switched kind of, you know, to feed the cats. And I, and I started to make that transition kids felt like we weren't working hard enough. So they would go and run on their own for miles and because they needed to get in shape. You know, I had a kid during a football player who came out for track last year. And I found out that he was going to the Y at five in the morning and and lifting every day for two hours before school. And, you you know, it's like, why? You know, that's not the plan I have for you, I, I, you know, that's not what's best for you because we're trying to do this. And then when you go and do all this extra stuff on your own, it takes away the point of what we're trying to do. You know what I'm saying? You know, when you, when you're trying to focus on speed and things like that and then kids go and don't buy into it, then they go do all this mileage or aerobic work or extra things on their own. And then they, they, you know, for what my, in my experiences, then they blame me for it. Kind of like, you know, yeah, we, yeah. That dad was like, this is your fault that he only got third and <laughs> broke 50 seconds. But it's like, no, no, no. If you, if you listen, if you do, you know, if, if you follow the the parameters, the guidelines that I'm trying to put in place here, that's not the case. You know, I, for, we broke, you know, we both work with high school kids and there's so many things outside of practice that we can't control. One of the things I had a kid who would always tell me, you know, I should be faster. And then I found out he was sleeping four hours a night and playing video games all night. That's not my, you know, it's like, the, you know, no, no, no. Don't blame what I'm doing. You know, your results on what I'm doing when there's so many things that I have no control and that you, you know, that you as a parent or an athlete control that directly affect what I'm trying to, to get, you know, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. And I think, I think the, this straight talk we're having right now is, is maybe invaluable for people going into the coaching profession Um because, because there it's a, there's a lot of shit. I mean, it's, it's hard. You know, there's so many things working against you. Um, there's so many things in what you just said that are meaningful. One of the things that parents have a hard time with is the fact that they, they truly believe that if they have to pay for, um, for training, that that training is infinitely better than school training. And, uh, and you know, that's a hard mindset to change. Uh, really hard uh, I mean I don't really love doing personal training so you know I tell people you know that you know, I work for a hundred dollars an hour you know and and they'll go oh great <laughs> you know it's like you know like okay 200 an hour you know and, <laughs> uh, uh, and you know they would like it more <laughs> so uh, so it's ridiculous that uh, I mean I, this funny story I, I was training two NFL running backs as one, one of my sprinters was going for personal training after practice with somebody else, if that makes sense. You know, I mean, I, uh, and I train NFL guys for 150 because they can afford it. But anyway, um, it is just ridiculous, the stupidity that's out there. Now, what can coaches do? I don't want to just paint the picture that we're screwed. Um, I do believe that feed the cats, if you're doing it with, you know, like, performing in practice like you're supposed to, record, rank, and publish. If kids are doing things that negatively negatively affect their speed, it will show up. When it shows up, I say, uh, you know, hey, what's up with that? You know, they'll go, I don't know what's wrong with me, coach. And that's a good sign. At least they realize something's wrong with them. I said, are you getting eight hours of sleep? Uh, and, you know, usually they go, no, it's more like uh, seven and a half. I go BS. You're getting like five and a half. And so, so it's a teachable moment. Um, sometimes they will say, Oh, I really squatted hard last night. I go, Oh, where are you squatting? Oh, I'm going to acceleration and you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but yeah, yeah. I'm really squat. You know, I'm really sore. I go, well, how, how that, how's that working out for performance for you? It just make them think now, having said all those things if if you lay awake at night worrying about all that crap, um, you're not going to be a good coach. you got to be confident, you have to you know like that whole Josh Metcalf stuff from chopwood carry water That you're on a mission every freaking day you're on a mission and 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 then you surrender to the results that you have to be able to sleep at night as a coach, and you have to be able to detach. And not worry about that one guy who's double dipping training or that one kid that's playing video games all night. You, you got, you, you got to wake up the next day on the same mission. But, but if, if you're thinking about that stuff, instead of, you know, having a great day, uh, you're not going to coach long and I'm lucky I've coached for 39 years and, and uh, I I I love it more than ever. And I think that's part of feed the cats as well, because you know, it's such a minimal dose. And the kids love it so much that there is a feedback loop that I reflect my kids. And I I think back during the earlier days when I was a coach, when I used to torture kids, and they would come to practice and say, Do we have to run today? <laughs> and would have this sad look on their face. And you know, that is not inspiring to a coach. To see kids with a sad look on their face, so so when kids are bouncy and happy and ready to go, um, you know there's that feedback loop. We we are better coaches, they're better athletes, and it's win win.
0: One of my top probably top three moments in my young coaching career, I there was a, a first year freshman that came out for track, and he was he was you know pretty good for a freshman, and and I was like, hey, same as Sam, I was like, Sam, are you going to come out next year? And he goes, Oh yeah, coach. I love track. He's like, this is awesome. And I was like, and that, and I, and I told him that every year until he graduated last year, I was like, you know, when you told me that, that made me feel better than, you know, kids that, you know, than a kid winning a meet or, you know, anything like that, because it's just, all right, I'm doing something right because ultimately you want what, so, you know, so there are coaches that are, that are purely results driven. Um, and, you know, that's an entirely different battle to fight, you know, especially at the high school level while results are important, but at the end of the day, we, you know, I I think the ultimate mission should be kids should love what they're doing and love the sport because, you know, most people, if they're coaching a sport, they have some sort of love for it. You know, I, I love, I love track and field. I love the sport of track and field and I love coaching it. And I want the kids that I'm coaching to share in that love for the sport. And so, and that's one of the things that I think that feed the cats does really well. And it helps kids, you know, like, I don't want a kid to come to practice and hate it, but, you know, and just be there because they feel like they have to, or because their parents are making them. I want a kid to come to practice every day with that, like excitement and that love for practice and things like that. You know, and that's something that I've battled with football as a football coach, kids come to practice and dread it, but they come to practice because for the game on Friday, So, like, I want kids to enjoy football practice too. I want you know, I want that to be something that they don't dread and like, Oh, we're putting in these, Monday through Thursdays because we get to play on Friday,
1: that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. Traditional thought in all athletics was that practice wasn't supposed to be fun. Um, It's not. And when I say fun, I'm not saying grab ass fun. Um, You know, when I say fun, I'm talking about what you just mentioned where people come with a bounce in their step, like, like they're looking forward to practice throughout my entire career uh, as an athlete, practice was something that uh, was semi-dreaded, um, that it was just a means to an end. It was, a, it was what we had to do to get to play in the games. And if you have that view of practice and there's a dark cloud about conditioning at the end of every practice that follows you around in practice, uh, you will never be as good as, as you should be. Uh, I, I, I tell the story all the time that is actually not me, it's Malcolm Gladwell from Outliers that talked about the 10,000 hour rule, 10,000 hours of deliberate practice leads to elite stuff. Now there's there's two important things there. One, one though is that if you have 10,000 miserable hours, it leads nowhere. You know, you have to find enjoyment in those 10,000 hours or you're not going to get there. Um, And usually to find enjoyment, you have to be pretty good at what you're doing, which is another, I mean, sad truth. Like I'm positive that I could spend 10,000 hours when I was 18 playing a guitar and I would never been good. I I just, I just did not have the ability to excel there. The other thing about the 10,000 hour thing is one of the things that Gladwell talked about was the Beatles actually did 10,000 hours of you know, playing in dives, you know, they would play literally eight hours sometimes at night uh, in Germany. Um, And, and then they put out their first album and it, you know, it it was a killer. Uh, What I always ask was, was that 10,000 hours miserable practice? And I would say, hell no. It was, it was the time of their life. They loved playing music they were not driven. They drove the car. They, they didn't show up because they had to, they showed up because they wanted to. And if we can get sports practice, especially in the modern age to be more like that, that's feed the cats. That's, that's what we are talking about. And that's why feed the cats. The most exciting thing in my life right now are the three or four football coaches that call me every day. uh, And the, five or six football coaches that email me every day from Texas, Georgia, California, and they are, they are feed the cats football coaches. Now, hell I, I had a, a football coach from Sweden uh, uh, that uh, that messaged me the other day. And I, I said, no, nah, by football, you mean soccer, right? She goes, no, I mean American football. I'm like, so damn, they're playing football in Sweden. So, it really makes sense to so many football coaches to have kids show up to practice with a bounce in their step, not ruined by the next day or the, the previous day, you never let today ruin tomorrow. Uh, you, you have high speed days where you're trying to be faster in practice than you are in a game. You give them more rest in order to allow them to play faster in practice and speed and power are things that win games. And so all that makes sense. And it goes right back to the thing about we're really good at what we love. And one last thing, if, if you really think about what teenagers are best at, I would say they're best at cell phones. They are best. At, and how many courses do they have on cell phones? Zero. How many, how many people drove them to be good in cell phones? Nobody. They were interested and in a way they love their cell phone like I do. You know, I, I, we are driven to be good at what we love to do. So if we can make things more likable, uh, maybe kids will fall in love with it.
0: I have my own personal experience and reasons behind this, but why do you recommend, you know, from not only from a training standpoint, but from like a philosophical standpoint, why why would a young Track or foot, really, or football or any, really any sport. Why should they buy into Feed the Cats?
1: Um, well, the 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 shortest answer would be that, um, that it's great for kids and great for coaches. That's the shortest answer. Um, I I truly start my the change in me from old school to. To uh, infamous, being infamous for these crazy ideas happened when I was around forty years old. I mean, I was I was a seasoned coach with with charisma, um, with championships, with you know uh, you know lots of success. But when my son Alec, who could dunk the basketball in the eighth grade, told me that he was going to play baseball in high school, uh, I started really thinking things over, you know, like, well, what is missing in track? You know, is, is there any way, you know, I said earlier that the only kids we got in Harrisburg, Illinois to run track were kids that couldn't hit a baseball. And that's 100% true. Uh, but I wanted to change that. I wanted to tempt the cats, the, the best athletes, the dunkers in basketball, the wide receivers in football. I wanted to make it a hard choice for them to mindlessly go out for baseball. And so I changed everything. And then when I changed it, I found that not only did I attract those kids, yes, which made us really good, but the other thing is because we record rank and publish, I started assembling data that proved to me that what I was doing was improving speed at, astonishing rates, even though speed grows like a tree, we were definitely growing. I mean, we, my generic nerdy freshmen who had never played a sport before were becoming remarkably fast, you know, by the time they were sophomores and they all came out for the team as sophomores because they, they liked the training. So, so that is really important. I think football is now seeing itself much more like track, you know, I always said that track is an orphan sport. You know, parents don't give a shit about track. Um, whereas football, it ain't no orphan sport. Parents want football for their kid more than their kid wants football. So, so there's a difference there, but it's changing. It's changing fast. It's, it, in schools that lack football tradition, um, that, that have been down for a while, Numbers are scary. I mean, there are schools of 2,500 or 3,000 kids up here who who cannot play freshman B games anymore. They're getting like 25 kids out for freshman football. That's a problem. And that is the same type of self-criticism that those coaches need to do that I did when I was 40. How can we make football... More, uh, more attractive to cats and to athletes in general, well, I would say you get rid of all conditioning, you start valuing performance and recovery and practice. You let the games be the hardest things you do. And everything goes through those kids eyes, and once they start showing up, and you know, you get that basketball player that you know, God, he can dunk, he, he catches everything, he 's going to be an all conference player in his first year of football, you get those kids starting to come out and all of a sudden the buzz starts going. And then in a feed the cat cat situation, you're an essentialist. You're constantly asking not what you can add to practice, but what you can take away. You are constantly looking for the 20% that gives you the 80% of your results. And you start getting rid of the fluff, getting rid of all the bullshit you do. And then you start expanding the stuff that really works. And Brad Dixon, of course, is a professional at this. So proud of everything Brad does. And, and so their practices are short. Um, they, their kids all go home thinking they could have done more. And then when that happens, we've already mentioned that coaches feel better because of that feedback loop. The kids, when, when you said that freshmen love track, and how that gave you a warm glow inside, imagine that times 50 football players, uh, especially compared to the shitty feeling that most football coaches have when they walk off a of practice field every day. It is miserable. Um, once you start feeling better, you become a better man when you go home. Plus you're going home earlier. Uh, Josh Lee at um, uh, he was a meathead up in your area for a while. And then they just had an amazing year last year. They upset Joliet catholic in the playoffs and he's 100 percent feed the cats now and he actually told me that one of his um, a wife of one of his assistants wrote him a letter thanking him for giving <laughs> for giving her husband his life back allowing him to be a better husband and father and you don't think coaches are better when they have a better home life i mean all those things start fitting in together you don't think that um, that coaches make better decisions on Friday night when they are rested and happy and can go home to a loving home. All those things start snowballing into win, 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 win. And um, that's why you do it. Absolutely. You
0: mentioned the football numbers and, you know, we are, here in Macomb, we have been in a, a, a drought, a success drought for a long time. I mean, last hmm. year we went, last year we went 0-9, you know, can't oh. get much and you know kids don't want to play football but i on the opposite end, in track my first year I, I had less than 20 kids and this season before covid i would have had over 40 and you know last year we won conference for the first time uh since joining the boys won conference for the first time since joining the west central conference and we've you know we've been growing and had more success and like you said sec- success just gets more success and you know kids see that the fun we're having and all of a sudden i've gotten a few kids that aren't playing you know that from the baseball team that's like well that's not fun i don't like just sitting in the dugout i want to you know you hear they hear about all the fun that we're having in track and so my numbers are just are, have been continued to grow and I, I i can say this somewhat critically of the football team because i'm i'm a, I'm a paid member of that staff so i can i can say <laughs> that it be too, you know it's a little bit of self-judgment here it's you know kids just aren't having a lot of fun playing football. So they don't want to play football. And that's, and that's been really tough to see. And then, you know, when I get to the spring and it's, it's the opposite. And and I love track because it's really refreshing for me. And it, you know, things like that, like you said, because I feel a lot better during track because kids are having fun and therefore I'm having fun. And then, you know, during football, we just, our numbers are so low and um, unfortunately without, uh, I guess, bad mouthing my boss um our head coach is just he's really stressed out because he's trying to get more kids out and things like that and it's just it's you know it's it's hard to see you know some not only a colleague but a friend kind of go through this stressful transition because he's 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 that guy that you know he's worried and he's he's putting in all these hours and trying to turn this program around and but all that's doing you know and is just reflecting onto the kids and you know they're stressed out and they see our low numbers and things like that and you know, with and it's just not fun for anybody, not only us as coaches, but the kids aren't enjoying football. And that's even hard. And that's hard as a coach to see, you know, like we were talking, we want kids to come to practice and look forward to practice and things like that. And, um, you know, when I, when I, that first year as the head coach, I did my workouts were a copy and paste, Clyde Hart workouts and all these things. And kids didn't enjoy that. And I thought why, you know, why am I trying to make kids throw up during track practice? That's not productive. Why am I trying to run kids to death? And, and so, you know, every year I've gotten more and more purposeful and, and, you know, away from this like hard work wins mentality, because that's just not well, you know, the, and part of that, you know, that saying hard work beats talent, when talent doesn't work hard. And, and I think so many coaches, you know, take that to the grave. Well, if we just outwork everybody and, it, you know, Back, I guess, back to my original question. You know, for as a young new coach, that's you're not going to start a program like that, at, at, you know, with this mindset because you're going to run kids off before you even get your feet underneath you. And I was really fortunate to get away from that mentality really quickly because my numbers are growing because kids are having more fun. And I'm, you know, at football. We're, it's the opposite. Kids are not having fun, and every year, you know, our numbers are dropping and dropping and dropping. And it's just it's really tough to see, and it's it's really polarizing for me. Where in the fall. We're struggling to put together kids, whereas in the spring, I've got so many kids, I'm trying to add more meat so they can all run. Having Brad so close and seeing how he does things, and I see, you know, last year, we would spend almost two hours every Sunday night watching film as a staff, and then I'd see Brad tweet out that, yeah, we don't meet as a staff to watch film. We (laughs) share notes on Google Docs, and, you know, we're spending time with our wives, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a better way to do this. This is... You know, it's tough as an assistant to try to get the rest of the staff to buy into these things. And, you know, I'm trying to say these things in a respectful manner and not to degrade my colleagues because I have the utmost respect for Our head coach and the other assistants, but it's tough as a young guy who is a feed the cats guy in track to then go to football where it's not a feed the cats environment. And it's really tough for me to handle that dynamic, I guess, is what what I'm trying to get at. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, the uh, I tell people that that feed the cats isn't all that great because once, once you truly dive in um, there's, there's no going back. You, you are, you will forever see all sports differently. And so you are cursed in a way to not fit in to old school situations as well. Um, I mean, I, I have four kids and two of them are football coaches. One, one, at Edwardsville and one at Andrew High School. They're both really good assistant varsity coaches and they're both with extremely talented, excellent people. Uh, I mean, Coach Lewandowski and, and, and Coach Martin at, at Edwardsville are just amazing people. But they're both, I mean, we're all products of old school. We are all, I mean, there was no feed the cats, um, You know, in, in our athletic background. Um, so, so this is really new and, and both of them are making, both of those head coaches are making small moves towards, towards better and better practice situations. Um, but you mentioned, you know, the weekends and stuff, football is really hard on both my sons. I mean, it's, it's, when I say hard, I mean, we're talking about, um, really hard, especially for my son, Alec, who has two. Uh, boys age two and age three at home uh, and a wife that works uh, in teaching and coaching as well. That's hard. But I want to go back to that old nine thing that old nine thing is um, is just, it's just awful. My heart hurts for that. If you were nine and Oh, you can get away with crimes to humanity. You, you can, if if you are in a traditional Uh, dominant school, you can be as stupid as you want in practice. You will always have kids out for the team. They will hate practice and love games and just the traditional, you know, we're going to beat the hell out of all these teams that only have 25 guys out for football. Um, (laughs) You know, so uh, all that. So the the question is, uh, first of all, are those 9-0 teams doing it right? No, they aren't. They are not doing it right. Um, But the 019 team has to really reinvent themselves. And I would say they're the perfect Feed the Cats uh, candidate because you have to attract more kids to your program. How do you do that? You must become anaerobic in practice. In other words, uh, you make practice look like games where, where you have a powerful, fast performance and then an extended rest period. I even suggest more rest in practice than you would have in the game so you can play faster in practice than you do in the game. You get rid of conditioning. Now, what's really hard is you mentioned that, of course, 0 and 9 teams are going to have numbers problems. Always. I get, I get this my favorite question. Coach, I only got 25 kids on my varsity, so obviously they're all playing both ways. And, or, you know, all, all eight of his best players are playing both ways. And I'm just afraid that my guys are going to wear out. And these schools have 60 players. We're going to kick our ass in the fourth quarter. So don't I need more conditioning? I'm like, no, no, that's not the way to look at it. You have to be fresher in games than that team. There, if, if you run your kids twice as hard. First of all, you're not going to have 25 kids on game night, you're going to have 20. Um, your numbers are going to be bad the next year and the next year and the next year. It is like this endless spiral to doom. Um, you have to uh, to even be more of a feed the cats type of team. Um, you know what? That team of 60 is probably going to beat your ass anyway. I mean, really, if you think about it, I mean, they got twice as many guns as you do. So, So you have to keep your practices crisp, and fun, and fresh, and and resist this urge to double down. And when you lose, you gotta resist uh, the urge to get, you know, like, by God, we may be losers, but we're gonna be in shape, you know? And we've all heard that crap, you know? Don't do that to kids. Kids have one chance to go through high school sports. Arguably, the greatest memory maker in your life and my life was high school sports. The best, if you think about it, I don't care how many Fourth of Julys you have, I don't care how many homecomings you went to, homecoming dance, prom dance, whatever. You will have 10 times, my father is 84 years old and he knows how many points he scored in the first half against East St. Louis when he was a sophomore in high school in 1952. I mean, we're talking, it is, one chance, we have one chance. Are we gonna be miserable? Are we gonna make it as positive as we possibly can for the kids? I believe when you have your own kids, you will see see it through a different lens. I worked here with the oldest school football coach I've ever known. And uh, he was 10 years younger than me, but he's the oldest school and, and we fought like hell. Uh, he's my cousin actually. Um, my mom and his dad, brother and sister, and and we fought like hell. Feed the cats versus, you know, Vince Lombardi on steroids, and and uh, and you know he evolved after about ten or eleven years of hearing my crap, hearing my crap. Um, but the key thing was is his son was his only son was playing on the varsity. I truly believed he started to see things differently. They start having music out to start practice. you know they bring all out a big speaker and have music. They got rid of conditioning. They took a Thursday off before a Friday game once. Um, they, you know and the kids were pissed, and I said that's okay, that's okay. It's okay if they're pissed because they're going to come out like uncaged animals on Friday night. It's okay if they're pissed if they don't have practice on Thursday um, but But he really, really evolved. And I think he evolved a lot because you can't help but see it in a different way when you see your own kids going through it. I don't have that yet.
0: I'm only 25. So I don't, I can't, I can't understand. I I can't relate to that part. What we're when we, when we're talking about how we want to do things as a staff this year, I think that um, this need at work, people is, is even more relevant today with COVID and the, you know, people missing all that time. Uh, that coaches are coming in like, well, we got to make up for that lost time. We got to, and we got to, you know, we got to work, 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 work. And, you know, it's crazy for me when this whole outwork the competition thing in football is still relevant because you look at the amount of kids that have, have died from conditioning in the summer that have suffered a heat stroke while doing gassers because they had to get, you know, in, in better shape. There was a kid, my senior year that passed away from a two a day. And I just think why, is that still a concept of we have got to run kids to death because we have to be tougher and, and all these things, you know, we have to outwork them when, you know, kids don't enjoy it one. And two, I mean, there are serious consequences to those kinds of things. Um, Especially, you know, when, you know, when you're doing all this in July and August, when it's the hottest of the hottest time of the year, I just don't, I, Uh, you know, and like you said, it's tough when you see things through um, a a feed the cat's lens to look, you know, to to look back and try to see it blows my mind. And I, you know, fun should be the most, for me, I think fun should be the most, the first thing, the first priority as a coach for a high school athlete. They should have fun,
1: fun fun and then performance. Exactly. And not that performance has nothing to do with toughness.
0: Right. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, fun for, and that's the thing when you have fun, you're going to get more you're going to get more kids out you know like you you know we were o9 last year and we also had less than 40 you know I want to say we had less than 40 kids um, freshman through senior. that's a problem you know and uh, that, there's a correlation there you know losing's not fun and then if practice isn't fun, you're not gonna have kids out which is just going to entail continue the losing streak because you don't have depth you don't have, you're not you're attracting good athletes. And then, you know, it's just this vicious cycle. So you got to, you know, like you, you know, you had change, you know, in your forties where you're like, well, okay, I got to think about this. And this is coming from Harrisburg when you had, like you, like you mentioned lots of success because, you know, you got to think critically and here, you know, that's something that we're trying to, you know, that I'm trying to get uh, us as a, a football staff to do is think critically of, okay, what are we doing wrong? Because nothing's changing. We've won three games in three years. What are we doing wrong? What, you know, and how can we change that? And, you know, from my, my co-to answer is we should do less. We should not, you know, get rid of conditioning, things like that, make football fun, attract more kids. We'll have depth. We'll have the, you know, the size that we want and we'll have better athletes and that will lead to a win that, you know, to me is like, what are we doing? What can we do differently? And to me, like, that's the obvious answer to go in and, and, you know, it, it, I'm getting a lot of resistance. And it's tough and I'm trying, you know, it's tough to be patient and understanding in those situations, especially when, and that's, it's tough for me to go from head coach in the spring to assistant in the fall. And I know that, you know, in wearing those different hats and not having that kind of control very much. input. And that's, you know, really tough. At the end of the day, if your athletes aren't happy, you need to, I think you're, you're doing something wrong. So at a lot, you know, I went to Atlanta West High School, very, very successful program, you know, Carthage, when it was just Carthage is one of the top five winning is football programs and girls basketball winning programs. They've won state championships in football and track boys and girls and even bass fishing. So success was very prevalent. So you just bought in automatically to whatever your coaches said, but looking back now, I'm like, Oh my gosh, why did we do that? You know, but you didn't question it because you're good and you were winning here. We're, you know, here we don't have that luxury. So I, you know, critical thinking and self-evaluation is
1: so important. And like, what can we, what are we doing wrong and what can we do differently? And, you know, uh, obviously 0-9, you should be looking in the mirror. But you don't think that Saban looks in the mirror every day at Alabama? Mm-hmm. You know, they, uh, they got rid, you know, they, they changed their S&C approach in the last year. They brought in two speed guys from the University of Indiana. And Alabama will never be the same. Because the Alabama uh, won a lot of games in spite of their SNC program. Um, they had a meathead mentality in the weight room, a meathead mentality in conditioning. And they say, geez, Alabama's great, that must work. No, it's a rigged game. They they were they were literally recruiting 20 potential NFL players every year to their team. It is grossly unfair to base anything we do in high school sports on what Alabama does. Having said that, Alabama still looks themselves in the mirror and say, we don't want to be meatheads anymore. We want a speed approach, and it's going to work great. The um, One of the things, two of the things about conditioning, you know, you, you're kind of wondering, why do we continue this abusive, negative crap? And there's a reason for it. And and you and I probably both understand it. When young men, I don't think it's the same with women, but I think when young men go through really hard things together, they band together. Um, it, it's 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 there. There's this love that happens in times of war, um, and so I think a lot of football coaches recreate that and like it. The problem with that, I don't question that at all, and I think Band of Brothers stuff is really good. But the problem with that is that it negates performance things, and performances should still be the key. You know how fast, how how many points we score, how you know, how how crisp our linemen are blocking, and, and you know all those great things, and that has nothing to do with torturing kids at the end of practice. You mentioned uh, kids dying. Uh, I've spoken. Over three hours in the last month to uh, a guy named Mike Craven, who literally testifies uh, at at in trials of coaches being put on trial for the deaths of athletes. Fascinating stuff. He said that ninety ninety six percent of all football deaths happened during the conditioning phase of practice. Isn't that amazing? Of course, me and you we that. For sure. You know, we, we understand that. Here's here's the key. And and all of those deaths happened because of hypothermia. It is the fact that uh, with a lean guy like me, who was a track athlete and stuff like that, conditioning at the inner practice totally sucked. But about a bunch of my blood would be going to the skin, allowing me to cool off because... Running those sprints, even though I wanted to make it look like high effort, uh, was still about 60% of my max speed. It was not hard for me, but for those big cats, they're treated like hogs, it was hard for them. For them to make time, they had to run about 90% of their maximum speed. So we're talking something like 88% of their blood was headed towards their muscles not towards their skin, so they weren't cooling off. So that's why um, it's rare, thank God, but that's why people die in conditioning stuff. They don't die uh, running plays. They don't die doing seven-on-seven. Seven. People die during conditioning because it's it's absolutely ridiculous that we treat every guy on the team equally when one guy runs a 4 five forty. And it's basically like it's a walk in the park. And your star offensive tackle weighs 265. And for him, it is abuse. I mean, literally abuse. So we have to rethink conditioning. I believe you get in shape uh, for games by doing game-specific stuff. You, you do stuff that looks like performance. Um, you, you You play hard for a few seconds, and then you rest for a while. You know, that, that's the way I think you get ready for games.
0: Yeah, I had to bite my tongue a lot, but I remember, so last year, you know, the IHS, the IHSA is, is going, is, is putting things in place to kind of limit, you know, you can't do two, as many two-a-days and, you know, you have to have so many more water breaks, especially when it's a certain temperature. You know, we had a, a practice last year. And it was, I mean, the heat index was over hundred degrees and we had a new turf field installed last year and you oh. ghost on turf. It's way worse. Oh. Than, I mean, it just bounces right back at you. And so kids were, you know, it was so hot and we had to have water breaks every, I want to say 15 to 20 minutes. And it was a lot of standing around, but you know, not only it, it, it doesn't look like you're working hard, but at the same point, if you're, if you're not doing those things, then you risk, re- dehydration and things like that. And then you're not performing better. You're performing worse, things like that. You know, everything we do in the week leads up to hopefully getting a win on Friday. Well, if you're running your kids dry all week and dehydrate, you know, I mean, there, there are physiological, not, you know, people do conditioning for the mental toughness thing a lot. And like, yes, we're, you know, what we're talking about, the outworking, but there are physical consequences to these things where kids are dehydrated, you know, things like that. And they get slow. And the exact yeah and then they're just, <laughs> and they're just not fat they're not as fast and they're not as fresh and i don't you know i don't i just don't know it, it's i guess you know like we we're saying you know we understand it and, and we see these things and it's tough to you know to to see other coaches that are still in that like we're just going to work harder not you know and, and not effectively and smarter and that's it, it's tough to see and you know i i'm glad to see more and more coaches are, are, are starting to shift away from that. And it, and it really helps when you have a guy like Brad Dixon, who's had, mm-hmm. who's had incredible success doing these things. And you can say, and he, you know, and you can look and say what he's doing works because, you know, like, like you were talking about earlier, you know, with recorder and publish where you can prove that your kids are getting faster. And that's, what's really nice. You know, it's not just this like crazy way of thinking of like, well, we're just going to take it easy. It's like, no, it works at all levels. And that's, that, and that, and that definitely, and that, you know, it's really, that helps out a lot, I think when you
1: can, look yeah, you know, and, and, you know, we've talked about your program, your football program at McComb, that's, that's going through really hard times right now. And, and I, I can't stop thinking about it, you know, uh, you know, wishing, you know, there's something you could do to turn it around. Because like I said, you know, players, kids only get one chance to go through it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the next four years, if you're a dad, some kid going into the football program at Macomb right now, you know, I'd be thinking about moving. I mean, I hate to say that, but you only get one chance for your kid to go through football and all three of my boys, um, had bad football experiences. And, and, um, I really think that two of them went into coaching because they had bad football experiences and wanted to make things better for future kids. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a, there's a guy, uh, in Southern Illinois, that's a, uh, that is a hall of fame coach 30 years in the game, incredible success. And he listened to that podcast with, uh, me and Brad Dixon and Kurt Hester and Dan Casey. Um, if, if, if people that are listening to this podcast right now, if, if you're half interested in this podcast, uh, you'd love that webinar. That webinar is fantastic and you can get it, um, you can get it on the track football consortium web website. And, uh, but anyway, um, I forgot where, where I was going with, Oh, the, the guy, the hall of fame coach, he listened to that webinar and he called me and said, um, so I'm changing everything. Hall of fame coach of 30 years. You know, you're talking about somebody that's 0 and 9. maybe you should look in the mirror a little bit. Uh, I'm telling you the greatest coaches in the world look in the mirror too. This guy is is wanting, he said that in practice, that everything was constant movement. Everything, including water breaks. They would run to the water break and back. And after that webinar, he finally realized that football is truly a choppy sport. The average play lasts five seconds or 30 seconds rest. The average drive, six plays. Um, There's a halftime. You're not working hard during halftime. There's quarter breaks. Um, referees are talking to each other for 20 seconds sometimes. That's an extra, you know, 20 seconds break. So football c- games are basically a lot of standing around with amazing excitement for a few seconds. And so, so we, we need to make our practice more like that. Now, having said that, he's real worried that his staff is not going to buy in. Uh, he's real worried that, uh, that dads on the sideline are going to see his practices as being less organized, um, um, too soft, all those things. And, you know, talk about softness. I'm telling you, really fresh, excited, fast, and powerful athletes will knock your socks off. I mean, there's, there's nothing soft about being fast, fresh, powerful, and 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 excited, and all those things. Nothing soft. You, uh, that whole idea that you have to be tired and worn out to be tough. One of the
0: the last things I want to I want to touch on about that. Our first game we played Charleston last year, and we were winning, and then our kids started cramping, and everybody <laughs> in the stands, and all you know, and even some of the coaches were like, "Well, we need to condition more." and uh, you know, I'm sitting there like there's not a direct correlation between cramping and aerobic capacity. <laughs> no, 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 we're just not t- we're out of shape. that's why we're cramping. and that was and I remember um i I have it pretty tough. I'm not a teacher. I actually manage a kitchen in a at a bar and grill. so after fridays i would have I'd have to go after a, fr- a football game on Friday night, I'd go into work and I would every and all these dads would come congregate, and start drinking, and that's all they were. <laughs> Oh, uh, you got you know, like after that first especially after that first game, like oh, you got you're not running them enough. That's why they're cramping. they're they're soft. I remember hearing that when I was in high school, like, Oh, you're cramping up. You gotta you need to go run more. You need to get some, you know, you need to go run some more gassers. I'm like, well, it's it's when I'm doing those gassers and I'm cramping up. What are you talking about? <laughs> where, you know, you-
1: this is where, you know, being a science teacher helps me some and there's not many people out there saying this shit, but you know, when you're talking about all those kids cramping up, um I know the answers. to these questions. Did they cramp up the same way in, in practice? No, no, uh, no, actually
0: one kid. uh, No, one of the main ones. uh, No, he hadn't cramped up all week.
1: Well, let's say this. Where do you find them? This is a better yes and no question or A or B. Uh, Where do you find the most cramps game one or a hard practice?
0: I want to say we had the most cramps game one.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's almost always the case. Florida State last year had something like 11 cramps in the first game. And um, and Willie Taggart said it was because their kids uh, let them down, not enough hydration. And, and you know, if, if here's the deal. Cramps are caused by a neuromuscular CNS reflex arc that – are the result of of playing in fifth gear in a game, but practicing in third gear. That the game intensity, the game speed, the game, you know, like hundred percent. In practice, believe it or not, good football players are able to fake effort in practice. They're able to make it look like they're going hard While they save, why are they saving? They're saving because practice is too long and there's conditioning at the end. So they're able to fake effort. No one fakes effort in a game. Every kid wants wants to go 100 in a game. So so what happens is um, uh, even though you're practicing three hours a day in the hot August sun in Tallahassee, Florida, or six hours a day or whatever they go. Uh, the game is different. And no matter how much water you drink, no matter how many bananas you eat, if you're doing shots of pickle juice, Gatorade like crazy, hydrating the night before, all those things you cramp up like crazy in the first game. You cramp up less in the second game and never you'll never see another cramp for the rest of the year. I mean, like cramps just don't happen later in the season because your body gets used to playing in fifth gear because you're finally doing game like stuff, game one, game two. So, so the best way to prevent cramps, um, is to, to have game speed practices. Now, every coach, hey, game speed, game speed, go hard. We're going to sprint, you know, but if, if, if you work their ass off the day before, and you have a three-hour practice today, they are fake an effort. They are not going game speed. So you have to create practices where you actually encourage standing around and recovery in order to play at game speed. I don't think you can do that every day, but I always suggest two days a week that you try to have a high-speed practice. And if you do that, you won't have any more cramps in the first game.
0: Yeah, that's, I, you know, it goes back to, um, dads and things like, you know, the people that are saying those things that like, well, you got to work harder and that, you know, everything that like, you know, there's like you, you, just mentioned it, you know, as a science teacher, you understand that there are, you know, things that play besides effort, you know, like there is a scientific reason for these things that it's not just, well, you got to run them harder. They or they, you got to drink more water. Why, you know, well, there is, you know, it has nothing to do with hydration. What? Well, yeah, it does because my coach said in high school that you got to drink a lot of water and you got to drink salt water and eat a lot of bananas or you won't cramp. And it's just, you know, as, as the you know, my, what's crazy for me is it's 2020. We have this wonderful resource called the internet that yeah. will tell you where you can like what causes a cramp and the answer, you know what I'm saying? And if you, if you Google that, it won't pop up as, well, you need to run more gasers, you know. Um, uh, and
1: I do want to, you know, qualify my thing hydration is good Mm -hmm. you're like uh, to keep your blood from turning into sludge keeps the blood moving faster that's really really good we want to keep the blood as thin as possible in order for that blood to move so i'm not talking against hydration i'm just saying that that hydration is not the reason why you're cramping um, and there's, it's really good to have minerals and, and, you know, and eat a healthy diet and all that stuff. But, but yeah, we just don't want, you know, the, the wrong thing to be perpetuated all the time.
0: Yeah. So, so that kind of segues into sort of my next point. You have, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, all the blogs that you've written for simply faster or ITCCA. um, TFC, you know, you starting TFC with, uh, coach Corfus, what led to that, you know, and sort of like your, I don't know, you, you know, you, you've been, you've been leading the fight, I want to say for, you know, this kind of, this change of thinking and with feed the cats and you, you know, you, you speak on a lot of podcasts and you speak at clinics and things like that. How did you get started and you know, and what made you really want to start educating other coaches and try to, you know, lead
1: to I love that question because it makes me think um, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan and one of his songs he says I'll know my song well before I start singing and um, and so I knew my song well I mean I've spent I mean it's kind of been the focal part of my life my entire life so so it's definitely something that You know, I didn't read a book about and then start spouting stuff off. These are things that I came to organically. Um, When I say organically, the fact that I was given keys to the car when I was a head basketball coach when I was 23, I was able to make a lot of mistakes. And I think you would agree that um, when you're a head coach, you learn 10 times as much because (laughs) – because you're you're making your own damn mistakes. Um, it's really easy to stand back and criticize, you know, the head football coach for doing what he's doing, but but you're not putting your ass on the line. You know, as soon as you start putting your ass on the line, you start thinking more. And so I went through all kinds of mistakes and stuff like that. So I I knew my stuff well. And then the other thing is, um, people say, well, where does all this outpouring come from, and and I think you might be able to relate to this as well that nobody gives a flying flip about track that literally like when I was a basketball coach, I'd go grocery shopping, uh, Saturday morning and, you know, take my two year old daughter with me and at least six or seven people would stop me and want to know about things from the game the night before. Yeah. Basketball and football coaches are, are celebs in small towns. Um, Track coaches are nobodies. Uh, literally no one in my school would ever stop me and, and want to know about my track team. If they did, they would ask me and then they would start walking away before I answered the question. You know, it's like just being nice. You know, like, hey, how's the track team? As they kept walking, you know. Um, so when I finally had um, Twitter and a place to write, and you know like people interested in my stuff there's this outpouring you know the i've wanted to talk about this shit forever and i've had nobody to talk to except for a track meet or something when you're standing around with another track coach so i don't know about you but whenever you go to a clinic and you get to sit around drinking beer with three or four other coaches like you hope the night never ends you you hope that you can just talk and talk and talk about all the tell stories and all that stuff Well, that's kind of the way I was. I kind of had, you know, like 54 years of stories in me, 54 years of things I want to talk about, bitch about, um, um, you know, spout off about. And so all that stuff kind of organically led to me to where I am now, where, you know, I got a call last year and, you know, a guy wanted to fly me to England and Ireland for five workshops, Um, you know, like, like, holy cow, and I'll end it with this um, uh, it was six years ago. Um, I'd had a good month, you know, things were going good. I would just been, um, you know, uh, put into the Illinois hall of fame for track coaches or whatever. And, um, I was feeling pretty good about life in general. And I got called in for my, uh, final evaluation that year as a teacher, assistant principal called me in and, you know, she said, Hey, not many people, um, get the excellent evaluation. We're only supposed to give it to like one out of every 20 teachers. I said, I don't care. I'm fifty some years old. I don't care if you give me a satisfactory. She goes, no, you're one of the excellent ones. Now I'm like, oh man, I'm having the best month ever. And so I signed the damn thing and I'm walking out. She goes, hey Tony, by the way, how's your baseball team gonna be this spring? (laughs) And, And I didn't know what to say, you know. So I just turned around and said, it all depends on the pitching. And, um, but th- what I'm telling you is that e- even though, um, uh, you know, I'm out writing and traveling and doing podcasts with you and all that stuff, track coaches are still nobodies everywhere. Uh, you're, you're never, uh, Chris Corfus is, is, a, <laughs> this is, even a better story. Um, uh, the head track coach at, uh, Hinsdale central told their AD that, um, that he might want to hire Chris Corfus as their sprint coach and their AD said, are you sure you want to hire a female? They thought that Chris Corfus was a damn girl. I mean, are you kidding me? Chris Corfus is, is like an international speed guru. They fly him all over the world. And, and the AD thought he was a girl. So, so we're never, we're we're never, quite as popular in our own backyard as we are with our cult-like, you know, people out there that are interested in what we say. So, so yeah, um, it's, been, it's been the funnest years of my life for sure. I, I love all this.
0: You, you mentioned how you would get interviewed every Saturday as a freshman football coach in Harrisburg. I've been – since I've been – this would have been my fifth season as the head coach. And in those five years, I've been interviewed by the newspaper one time and it was my first year. And they just asked who was going to be on the roster and how we <laughs> thought we were going to look. And I thought, oh, okay. You know, and I was really excited to get interviewed. And I'm like, oh, great. Like the newspaper cares about track. And, uh, you know, last year we won conference by a, a, a country mile. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, nobody not chirps. you know, here we are winning conference for the first time and nobody cared. And it, I, and it just blows my mind. And for me, I, what makes me sad about that is I think it's a disservice to kids. Yeah. And you know I think kids, kids want to be recognized as they should for their accomplishments. And so, you know, it makes me sad when here we are um, doing really well and we're, you know, we're winning meets and things like that. We, the programs come so far and crickets, nobody cares.
1: Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because that, that is our job as a coach then. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yet yeah, that, like what I played back in the seventies. I mean, you all see my scrapbook. I mean, I I got like big three inch scrapbooks. Every game was written up every game, every track meet had pictures, every football game. I mean, it was, uh, we could listen to our coach on the radio, you know, like every week, you know, like an hour long show. Uh, Our games were on the radio, uh, all that stuff. Uh, And today kids don't have a scrapbook. They, they really don't. I mean, people don't read newspapers anymore. So, so what we have to do as coaches is, and it's actually kind of fun, we have to control the narrative. We have to have a website or a Twitter site. Or like a lot of people are probably sickened by my over-the-top publicity about my team and my kids on Twitter. But that is their newspaper. That is... Uh, you know, I am not trying to downgrade any other team. And I I really work at trying to uh, promote other coaches and other teams and track and field in general. So people won't hate me so much when I put out stuff about my own team, but I put out those great pictures of my own guys that attract me and all the great things they do, because like you say, otherwise it's crickets, it's crickets. And they only get one chance to go through what they're going through. So, so as much work, I probably do more work in promotion of my kids than I do in 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 training them, you know. Which doesn't mean I don't train them. I I, I do train them, but but you know, I spend I spend more hours on Twitter than I do in practice.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, and I think one of the the pillars of feed the cats that uh, what i I think comes into play with this is record rank and publish kids going on twitter and seeing you know what they read and how they rank and things like that and getting kids excited and getting you know your your athletes times out there and things like that you know um you'll see a coach tweet like their 10 meter fly times and and it'll get retweeted by other coaches and liked and things like that and just kind of you know that's a, a that's an awesome way to get your kids out there in front of other coaches and you know it makes them makes them feel good you
1: know yeah every you know when when you see it seems like coaches everywhere even college coaches now are doing miles per hour Mm -hmm. uh, stuff and when you see miles per hour stuff that's a feed the cats origin miles per hour came from feed the cats we have wristbands you know 20 mile an hour 21 22 23 mile an hour we don't have many 23 runners but but we have those four wristbands and um and our kids love them and and that Record, Rank and Publish uh, feeds the cat. It, it feeds the competitive nature of the cat. If, if a kid doesn't give a flying flip about that stuff, he's probably not a very good athlete, he ain't a cat. But even like big linemen will celebrate the first time they break six in the 40, you know, and, and that's, that's the whole deal. And then once you start down this path, you will start developing data where you can show an incoming freshman, like, hey, look, you just, you just ran a 4.91 in the 40, 4.91. And the kid will go, well, is that good? And you go, okay, let me show you the great players on our varsity right now who ran slower than that as freshmen. You are better than him and him and him and him. And that kid's eyes will get great big and say, holy cow, because that's, that's a fact. That's a fact. That kid is faster than those other kids were at the same age. And if you aren't doing any data in practice, you're not performing at a high level, first of all, because if kids aren't being timed, they aren't running as fast as they can run. But if you're not collecting data, you really don't know where you've been. You know, like a sophomore does not know where he was as a freshman. And you, as a coach, don't know where he was as a freshman. You're just just like, oh, yeah, he was pretty fast. No. If you have data, you know where he's been. And I think you know where he's going. Because if if that graph is ticking upwards, we know what happens to upward-ticking graphs. Like COVID-19 is upward-ticking right now. I bet next week it's still going up because that's what graphs do. They keep going in the same direction unless they're acted upon by an outside force. There's not many outside forces being acted upon right now against COVID. So it's gonna go up, 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 up. And the same thing will happen to speed. As kids get faster, they will continue to get faster.
0: One of the things that I love about coaching track compared to say like maybe like a football or basketball is we work with numbers and you know, I've never been accused of favoritism because I have empirical data that says this kid should run and you you know, things like that. And with you know, data is so valuable to a, a new or, you know, well, all coaches, but I think um, it's something that starting out coaches should really buy into because then you can see if what you're doing works. And as you track over the first few years, you can adjust ship as needed and say, okay, this isn't working. You know, football that's, you know, it's more of wins and losses kind of thing. But um, in track, you know, it's like, okay, are we getting faster over four years? And if not, or if, you know, this year we did something different and our times didn't grow at the rate that they had before, things like that. And you can see and track that. Um, And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, going back, I guess going back kind of to my earlier question of why uh, young coaches or new coaches should buy into Feed the Cats, I think that's something right there that really helps is, it's a, it's a reason to track everything. And then you can, you have numbers to back with what you're doing or about, you know, or not, or what, you know, and see if it's working. One of the other things that I love about Feed the Cats that I, went, I forgot to touch on earlier is, you know, we talked about having one assistant or, you know, if you have a small staff, what one of the common denominators of, of more than half the track events is they're a speed power event. Throwing is a speed, you know, while people think of throwers, they think of these huge Goliath people, But it's still a short, fast burst of, you know, uh, energy. You know, it's a quick, short action. um, Jumps. uh, And obviously spreads up and, you know, and even even, um, the eight mile, you still, there's a huge speed factor into that. Mm -hmm. I think, and that's something I've had a really hard time getting my distance kids to buy into because our cross country program is ran by someone who, all right, for practice this week, we're going to run a lot. And then tomorrow at practice, we're going to run a lot. (laughs) <laughs> and, we're and so when I come to track and I'm like, Hey, we're not going to, we are going to, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, why are we sprinting? Well, because you've ran a hundred miles all summer into the fall, you need to get faster. And um, one of the kids, and I, and you've, you've taken some really good pictures of over the years, but I, uh, Andrew O'Keefe from Granite city, who yeah. was the three a state champion in the mile last year, we saw him at an indoor meet at, at Illinois college he didn't run the mile here in the 400 and I want to say 50 seconds inside.
1: Sure, and I sure.
0: looked, and I looked at my distance because I'm like, you telling me he doesn't do any kind of speed work and he just runs crazy amounts of miles. Um, Donovan Brazier just ran 335 in the 1500. And the farthest he said he's ever ran a practice is 8.1 miles. So, but anyway, uh, the common denominator in, in most track events is, is speed. So what should you spend the most time working on it's speed? And if you want yes. to improve the program, in all assets, you know, uh, one of the things that I, you spoke last year at the Iowa track clinic and um, which is a great, I've gone to that clinic, I, I want to say six years in a row. And I want to, as a tip, I think it's very funny. So you were, the, you know, the keynote speaker last year, the year before that was Clyde Hart. <laughs> <laughs> really funny like all right this year Clyde Hart and the next year is Tony and it was so funny um, just listening to the different viewpoints and um, I, I, I that's just kind of a, a sidebar I thought that was really funny um, but one of the other speakers was Todd Lane who's the jump coach at LSU and yeah. he did a presentation on coaching multiple events at the same time and as with one assistant I'm trying to think of how can I maximize my time well everybody on the team in every event can improve by getting faster and working max velocity. So I can coach the, I can have the entire team run fly tens or fly thirties at the same time and coach all my athletes at the same time. And, you know, we can do that multiple times a week. One of the things that you did a, a debate for meter date with Ryan Banta, who was my last guest. Um, and Ryan's a, an incredible coach. And I got a lot from talking to him, but one of the things that he does very differently is he, all of his athletes kind of do, something different that's more tailored to them and i'm sitting here thinking and i remember thinking to myself how can i do that i have one assistant how can i get all these different training programs at once and coach them effectively whereas when i do feed the cats i can speed power you know pretty much anyone that's on a distance runner you're going to do max velocity today and i can coach everyone at the same time and it's really easy to manage a large group of kids like that today's a speed day you know and then you do x factors and things like that or you know today's a lactate day It's really easy to plan that out and it's really easy to coordinate a large group of kids when it's really simple like that. And simple is not always bad. And in this situation, it really helped me out a lot. And it helped me out as a coach because I wasn't trying to do a hundred different things. And I just, you know, when you just work on the common denominators between events and improve those things, then you, you know, you get better at those things.
1: Right. I think, um, I think feed the cats is highly reproducible and I do really, uh, flare up when people say, yeah, you shouldn't copy and paste a system, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, that that's not correct at all. The, the reproducible part is, is really important. And it's a way to manage, as you say, a large group of sprinters, um, um, that debate you were talking about with me and Ryan, Ryan's a really good guy. I I didn't enjoy that debate at all, but I think it was, it was good, it was a good thing to do because I think, I think we need to, um, challenge each other, be able to sit down at the table with somebody you totally disagree with. Um, and, 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 and show respect and ask questions and things like that. I think that would serve all of us well. Um, at one time I, I asked the question that was really just a mean spirited um, thing. I said to him, I said, Ryan, what would you say if I told you right now, you were the most complex and sophisticated track coach I've ever heard of in my entire life? He said, well, I take that as a compliment. (laughs) And I just put my hand, you know, like, oh my God. I mean, like, there is no way I could reproduce the critical mass system. Um, It is, I I, I think it's it's so complex as bullshit. Um, to be honest, but, um, but he is what, what you, he is the poster child of differentiated training where he says, he, another thing I made fun of, he says, I look at their genetics and, and if, if they're more predisposed to being a 400 meter, I said, genetics, what are you doing? Doing a genome test or like, what in the hell are you talking about? genetics he goes well you can tell by their you know western european ancestry that i'm like no we can't no we can't i am not going to take that six foot uh uh kid that's a freshman okay you're not very fast so your genetics tells me that you're going to be a 400 meter runner and that's what i'm going to train you as in the next four years no i'm going to train all my guys the same way and i think that ryan too um, I, I try to make this differentiation. If, if you coach girls in Missouri compared to boys in Illinois, there might be some differences in the way you train athletes. For example, um, I want my track program to be a breeding ground for athleticism for football and basketball. I want my track program uh, to produce speed. So. That kid that's a six-foot freshman who only runs 17 miles an hour, I'm not going to train him middle distance. I'm going to train him for speed, and that's exactly what I did to a kid that ended up this year running 22.5 miles an hour, and now he's going to play wide receiver at the college level. And I really believe he would have never got to 22.5 miles an hour if I would have trained him differently. I trained him for speed. And I don't think you have to give up anything in the 400 meters by getting real fast. Um, real fast guys tend to just do great in the 400. So, yeah, all that stuff is is really, really interesting. Um, I do think, like you said, that um, that in a couple hours, I can set up a young track coach to have a feed the cats type of program. Now, he's not going to be, you know, I have a PhD in it or anything the first year. But but the idea that we're going to solely focus off season on speed and power, nothing on endurance, and then we're going to strategically learn to sprint farther during the season. And, and we are going to treat all of our sprinters like they are potential 400 meter runners, all of them. I think it's just win-win. And I, I know that the blanket approach sounds you know, like overly simplified and people make fun. Oh, you never do a blanket approach. I'm sorry, but if you have 40 sprinters, you're going to have a hard time differentiating training. You know, that you better have somewhat of an overarching blanket approach or you'll never get to the speeds that those kids deserve to be genetically. Once again, you know, we don't know where their genetics is, but I do know this, that most kids... For sure you, for sure me, never got to their genetic ceiling for speed. We never got as fast as we should have gotten. There is no question in my mind. And so that's kind of my overarching goal, is we're going to get everybody to the absolute ceiling of their genetic speed, especially in high school when they come in as 14-year-olds. Why are we saying? Yeah, the only kids that we give up on speed-wise are our distance kids. Our distance kids work on volume, which all distances should. But I mean, my distance guy knows my uh, password to my garage, and he picked up my free lap today at six in the morning. And they worked; they do speed work three times a week. Now they will never be as fast as they could be, but distance guys have to chase two rabbits. They have to chase the the endurance rabbit. And the speed rabbit, they're never gonna catch the speed rabbit. But as John O'Malley says, you gotta come as close to that speed rabbit as possible to be a great distance coach. And and so many distance coaches run a 12-month a year cross-country program, which is which is wrong.
0: Yeah. And it's for me as tough as not the cross-country coach to then and up until this last year I had coached my distance runner every year. And which, which was tough for a lot of reasons because one, they just looked at me as the fat throws coach, so I wouldn't know anything about distance running. And so it was for them to want to buy into what I was saying, but my big selling point was you know, it, it works its way down. If you want to be a fast miler, you know, you need to improve 800 meter time to some degree and then to improve, you know, four and then, you know, it works its way down where, you know, max velocity has, you know, a carryover to, to distance as well. What is adding 20 miles of just base running going to do to drop your mile time? And you know it's this. Well, I'll be in better shape. There's a you know I, you see I'll, I see a lot of, of of kids distance runners cross the finish line after a mile or two mile, and they're not that tired because you know and they're checking their watch and their splits and things like that. And it's like you you didn't lose because a kid ran more mileage and you you lost because at the end of the race he had a faster kick. It's hard for that's been really challenging for me as someone that coach that has had to coach distance runners to try to get them to buy into, you know, we ran 10 meter flies, uh, one day in practice and the whole team did. And the slowest fly times were my distance runners. They were slower than my throwers. And they didn't, then they looked at that, didn't think anything was wrong with it. They're like, they didn't understand of like why speed is so crucial because you're not running that, you know, two miles to a distance runner is not that far. You know, when you go on a 10 mile run every day, what's two miles, you know what I mean? It's 10 minutes. Where, exa- you, know, it's, it's, you know, I have kids that will go run for hour, like over an hour at a time. And it's like, so you have the aerobic capacity to run two miles, so what can you do to make those two miles, you know, faster? Get faster, not run more. It's uh, it, brilliant, you know, yeah. Uh, and, you, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Coach O'Malley because I've heard him talk, you know, about speed a lot. And it's every distance coach in Illinois knows who Sandberg is and has you know seen their, their their success over the years in distance and uh, so it, it was really great to hear him say these things and you know i've i've definitely forwarded a few articles <laughs> to yeah. some of my Well
1: saying, hey, John you know John is the most interesting guy i i know um, and and the way he sees it i think is just so brilliantly simple i mean he can get complex as well but if you are preparing for a three mile run in in the fall. That is the aerobic base that you need to go into the spring. And so what he does in the spring is he focuses, he doesn't continue to focus on the three mile. His focus shifts to the four by eight, getting as many people fast in a two minute run as possible which then feeds the speed necessary to become a good cross country athlete. And, and so it would be totally different if John was great in cross country and half ass in track, but he's not, he is, he's had two national champions in, in cross country national champions and one sub four minute miler in track. And he's the best four by eight coach in the history of the United States. So, so he is able to combine the two things. And, you know, I, I think both of our bias is that too many cross-country programs chase one rabbit. They chase endurance only.
0: Sort of wrapping up, I have a couple of random questions before we close out. First off, what do you think the future of, of sports is going to be with COVID? Do you think there's going to be false points?
1: Uh, I am... I, um, when I'm not doing podcasts and writing articles, I, I'm watching MSNBC and before people like, Oh, that's all fake news. <laughs> if you watch about two hours of, of MSNBC, you get about five to seven minutes of important factual information. And if you're not, if you turned if you're not a news person, you're not a reader, um, I feel sorry for you because the shit you say is going to be ignorant. Um, the th- I am very hopeful. I think that Pritzker and well, I think Lightfoot's uh, she's a she's one of the meanest people I've ever known. seen in my life. I mean, what they have done to press down that that uh, you know to depress the uh, the curve, you know, uh, to flatten that curve. Is really impressive. It's it's really very similar to what European countries have been successful at doing. So I think in that regard, Illinois, you know, we can be very hopeful because we have gone through hell, and those two people have taken so much crap for doing the right thing that that I'm proud of them. So I think we have a chance. Um, the thing that I really am fearful about is. Uh, what in the hell do we do about transportation? You know, like how does a football team get on a school bus and go to a game? I just don't understand how that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and people say, well, you know, they're not going to die. But hell, all of our bus drivers are about 75, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I'm 61, and, and, you know, I don't think I want to get COVID. You know, I mean, I could literally die or have permanent damage. Um, I just think that there's going to be, no matter how good Illinois is, the entire South's on fire, just burning like a forest fire right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that back and forth, you know, like people are flying into Midway and O'Hare today, you know, I mean, you know, they're, they're not, going through a mandatory quarantine like other countries are doing. So so I am hopeful, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that, I'm afraid we're gonna lose an entire year of athletics. Um, and now, having said that, I don't think we should all get depressed. I think we should all stand up and make sure that we're when we're in indoor spaces, we have masks on, you know, and, and we follow uh, guidelines, you know, there's nothing, you know, you're not a pussy if you wear a mask, you know, you, you just care about your fellow man. But it the, if we have football this year and fall sports, I think that we can all really, really uh, um, say that Illinois has done it right. This isn't,
0: this isn't fair, uh, but to think this, um, but when, when COVID happened, I, w- my boys team, we were on track. We won conference last year for the first time. Oh. We qualified Boise State for the first time since before I was here as a coach, and we were we were going to have a huge successful year. And then COVID happened. And we lost our season. And one oh. of the first things I thought of and <laughs> was your your through the lens article, and you talked about entropy and um, how <laughs> if you have a good year, watch out because something's bad. Something bad's going to happen. I was like, well, here it is. This is I don't know. That was the, one of the first things that immediately popped in my head. After uh, they canceled spring sports well
1: I'm, I'm glad that, that's so cool that um, I, I thought that was a cool section of my, in that article um, entropy for those people who are not sciencey entropy basically means that whatever you build will fall apart mm-hmm. you know that is the human condition now, I mean you could build you know a, a, a house made of stone it's still going to fall apart the mountains will eventually crumble um, Things naturally do not come together, which is exciting to me as a coach, a parent, whatever a human, is that we are what we build. But we also have to realize that nature wants wants it to fall apart, and so, so yes, um, COVID is a good um, uh, illustration of entropy, and and I did not have a championship team this year. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was extremely depressed going into the season, thinking that I had the greatest sprinter in the history of Illinois, and he wasn't going to run for me because he graduated early. Mm-hmm. And here I, I was, you know, somewhat miserable and had to self-talk all the time because Marcellus was not going to run for me. But looking back and this is ironic he only missed two meets. We had two indoor meets. And so all of that, you know, like, oh God, it could have been so much fun. Hell, no, he only missed two meets, you know, so, uh, you know, life is strange.
0: Yeah. Um, it would, it, you know, uh, I was actually just yesterday talking to uh, in, during, um, in the way you're one of my, he would have been a junior. Uh, he was on, either one of my state qualifiers in discus and one of my four by four legs. And he was talking about how excited he would have been for the track meet this year, because um, I don't know wh- I don't know why how it happened, but my team at state turned into the biggest uh, Finnegan Shermer fan club. I don't know <laughs> if it was his name Finnegan. <laughs> Me too. Dominate, but he, they were all like obsessed with Finnegan. They're Like oh, we can't watch Finnegan run again, and um, or in you know it, it it is sad when you think about all, how impressive the state championship meet could have been this year when you think of you know like Finnegan or Willie Johnson and East St Louis. Um, There were some really good senior throwers this year and um, things like that. But I was like, yeah. I was like, but if we had state, we wouldn't have gotten to see Marcellus run anyway. And he didn't, because he he didn't know that he graduated early. I was like, so even if we had a state track meet, we would have missed out on watching something special again. That's probably the
1: saddest thing, you know. uh, uh, Like Andy Dirks is my assistant coach, my terrific distance coach. And he ran at Rochester, which is kind of like in your area, isn't it?
0: Yeah, very close. close. Yeah,
1: and um, and he ran for his dad, who was a Hall of Fame coach, and and Andy was one of those good distance runners that if he would not have had a senior year, nobody would have ever known him. You know, he won he won the mile his senior year, and and that was maybe the seminal moment of his life that when he was a state champion in the mile, which would not have happened if he were lost his senior year, because of that, he goes to Eastern Illinois University and is around a fantastic distance coach and a distance group that he's still very good friends with today. And he is a fantastic distance coach and still, you know, he runs like a 226 marathon. You know, he, he's a total star distance runner at the age of 40. And uh, um, all those things, you know, I just wonder how many seminal moments were missed this year. You know, how many guys would have burst onto the scene uh, and, and made, their, made their mark and then changed the rest of their trajectory because of that. And, yeah, that's just it's, – it's nothing more than just sad that we, we didn't have a season.
0: A question that I had down from one of the things that when we were talking about dads helping out, how do you handle um, new assistant coaches? I had a really, Ryan Banta had a, some really good points about how he gives, you know, responsibilities to his new assistants. And, you, you know, talking about you have a really, nice, a really good assistant distance coach. How do you, you know, because you're, you're a sprints coach, but you're also a head coach and, you know, the program as a whole is, is your, is yours. And so how do you, Parlay trust and responsibility to event groups and event coaches. Yeah,
1: um, and and I'm in a school now. Of you know, like I said, I I coached my teams at Franklin with zero assistants, zero. Mm-hmm. I, I you know it was um, that was fun. Um, my best thrower was my throws coach, um, and and he was great. Um, and you know, at, at Harrisburg, I had a halftime assistant. You know, that went bass fishing on pretty days. Um, so here I have three and a half assistants, um, uh, three and a half. So, um, that's different. And I would say if anything, and, uh, I empower my assistants, you know, I, I give them guardrails. obviously, uh, you know, I tell Andy Dirks things like, like, you know, if you're, if you're still co- coaching cross country during track, I'm going to fire your ass and and we both laugh you know and but i want to make sure you know that there are certain guardrails um to to what we're doing and um uh, but then i i ba- basically make him the governor of the distance group and because we have 100 guys on our team we don't ever meet as a team we don't even meet when we're going to a meet because you know we're in two buses uh so uh so he his distance guys report to him every day, and he is the governor. I'm still the president, but he is the governor of his group. And then the same thing happens in my throwers. My throwers report to Sebastian Carcioni who is a, a who who runs his group. And we never we just can't afford to get a hundred people into one spot in our little field house. Um, it's just it's a it's a zoo in there, mm-hmm. and then. And then my jumps coach and my hurdles coach are, are my lieutenants. Uh, they, they are under me. Now, once again, I empower them, but I cannot allow them carte blanche. For example, my hurdle coach, who is one of the greatest human beings I've ever known, a guy named John Singleton, an African-American guy that's just a wonderful role model, fantastic person, and a great hurdle coach. He's had great hurdlers for us. He has a tendency to drift into the hard work wins mentality because that's the way he was coached. Uh, One day I saw him doing 400 meter hurdles all the way around the track, doing burpees in between them. And I'm like, if I ever see you doing anything stupid like that again, I'm gonna fire you. And he smiled and said, are you serious? I go, yes. And I smiled. Yes, I am serious. We are never going to go over more than two or three hurdles. If I ever see you doing that, Without my permission, I will fire you. We are going to be a fast to the hurdle, fast and fresh, spiked up hurdle team. We are never going to do endurance hurdling ever. He goes, got it. So, I, so those are still the guardrails, the hard talks that you have to do with guys. But you mm-hmm. have to explain why you're doing that and, and examples of other, you know, like my son, Alec, who does that and how he's had unbelievable hurdlers who have never gone over more than two or three hurdles at a time in practice. They've never gone over hurdles slow. They've never gone over hurdles tired. And they do just fine at the end of the race. So you have to go through that. I our first year jumps coach this year, Nico Capizio, who uh, who, to his credit, really like shadowed me and 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 Bought into my stuff, and he, he formally ran for me, so that was easy. But as a head coach, you must empower your assistants, but also give them guardrails, and you can never let them do things wrong. Um, so so basically, you let them run their own show, but you let them know what the show should look like.
0: I actually got a third assistant this year. who was a college student, actually ran at alina West like I did, uh, named Jacob Bryan, and I I got that because like, we had a, a, a Freshman come on the team who has down syndrome. So they allotted money for an extra assistant to kind of help nice. us with things like that. And so he became my distance coach and, you know, he'd never coached before. He's, you know, he ran for a year at Carl Sam or at a uh, down in Carbondale and then transferred to Western. And I was like, look, the workouts, I want to, I want to know what they are, but I'm not, you know, and these are the workouts I would like you the type of workout I would like you to run, you know, like I would like you to do a lactate day on this day or a speed day in yeah. these kinds of But I trust and I know that you through experience and through the coaching that you received know enough to not ruin our kids. And so, you know, uh, because he had never coached before, I kind of, there was a shorter reign, but he still had the freedom and autonomy to kind of do what he wanted to do. And so, and I, I know he appreciated that when while it was a short lived season and um, I hope we're going to build on that next year, but no, like, you know, you're the head coach. But if you don't empower your assistants to do what they think, you know, what they want, you're not going to have a lot of assistants for very long. So, and ultimately like my assistant, the last two years, he was my age, he was 20, you know, 25 too. And he wants to go and run his own program someday. And I would have done him a disservice to just control everything. And, you know, especially being that we were the same age, you know, so now, you know, he had the freedom to kind of do whisper and hurdlers what he wanted um with the parameters that i wanted which was you know a feed the cats type system and so but i gave him the freedom to kind of run that as he saw best with um and uh i know that helped him and when he goes off and then becomes a head coach somewhere he's gonna understand you know he's gonna understand um side note i paid for his ticket to go to the iowa clinic so he would hear you speak and <laughs> uh, because he kind of questioned feed the cats and i was like okay hey, there's this clinic in Iowa, why don't you go to it? I was like, I don't care what, you, what sessions you go to, but you're going to go to these sessions. And um, afterwards, I remember just seeing his eyes just huge. And he's like, it all makes so much sense now.
1: <laughs> yes. You know, I, I was going to add two other things about assistants that I really, this has nothing to do with their events. But I tell my guys that I want to be challenged. Hmm. I want them to come up and say, you got on that kid way too hard. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, now, honestly, I do not like to be challenged. You understand what I'm saying? You know, like nobody wants to be called out. Nobody wants somebody to say, we're going, you are going in the wrong direction, you know, or something like that. But, but as a leader, you have to encourage that. And then the other thing, and this is one of my favorite things in all of administration of anything is that don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Mm. It's one of my favorite quotes, I don't know who said it, but but everybody can bring me a problem. Um, you know, like, hey, so-and-so, you know, whatever. But it takes real work on their part to propose a solution to that problem. And it may not be the solution we both agree to, but. It just gets the ball rolling. You don't want assistants to constantly be bringing you crap. We got enough crap in our life, you know, but we want to constantly, you know, like reflect and be self-critical and then, you know, think, you know, what could fix this?
0: Probably, I guess, one of my last questions, and this this is for the Illinois track coaches. Do you think, going into the season, the homewood Flossmore had assembled the best coaching staff <laughs> in the history of the state of Illinois.
1: <laughs> I mean, um, homewood Flossmore is a fabulous place, man. I mean, Nate Peabody is a good friend of mine, just a fantastic person. Rob Assisi, uh, it's weird. In the, in the modern world, I consider Rob Assisi one of the best friends I've ever had. And it's weird because we've only sat down together a couple times. You know, we're just we're just constantly talking back and forth through our phones and things like that. Um, but he is just an amazing chumps coach. And then I just had lunch with Chris Corfis yesterday and hung out with him. And he is truly uh, the most unique man I've ever met in my life. And, and to think that we're good friends now is just is really cool. But the fact that they put those three guys together at one school is, is just amazing. I don't know if you know much. You know about their facility, how awesome it is?
0: Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. I've, like on Instagram and Twitter, yeah, I've yeah. seen
1: that. Their- 200-meter track, six lanes. They have a football field on the infield, I believe. Um, so, so arguably the best high school facility in the nation with those three all-star coaches. And then, you know, it's a big school. I think it's about 3,000 kids. It's mm-hmm. like 60% African-American, which is, you know, means that they – you know, have uh, great genetics, as, as Ryan Panther would say. There's no question that, you know, there, there's a reason why typically all eight lanes are filled at the NCAAs in both sprints with, with African-American sprinters. Um, they they tend to be high-twitch or fast-twitch athletes. This is something you may not know. Did you know who just got the distance job there?
0: Um, I, I can't remember his name, but uh, Crete Monet's head coach.
1: Yes. Brian O'Donnell, who is another real good friend of mine, a guy that I've probably had a dozen, uh, eaten breakfast with him a dozen times. Um, you know, we both share in the love of Neil Young uh, in music. And and uh, he, he's a very reflective, smart guy. Uh, a friend of the O'Malley's, he went to Sandberg High School, uh, was best friends with O'Malley's older brother growing up. But anyway, here's the guy that wins it. 2019 state championship with one of the greatest sprint groups ever. Uh, even though he was a distance coach, coaching sprinters. And by the way, how do he coach them? Feed the cats. And, hmm. and so he just got the distance job at HF. So, so now all of a sudden they're going to have all these great cross country teams and all that. And, you know, they just got it all working for him. But one, one more thing about HF, they've had a football coach, who's for many, many years, he goes like 11 and two every year and thinks he's, you know, the greatest football coach in the world. But, but I have written proof that, that he discourages athletes from running track. I mean, they never have throwers ever because their football players don't come out for track. Um, they might have one football player once in a while who comes out as a sprinter, but he actually has to swim upstream to do it because um, uh, they, they are, have a, basically a year round program of football at HF who I, in my opinion, even though they go 11 and two every year, they un- they underachieve. And mm-hmm. I, I don't like coaches that hoard athletes. You know, I, I've, <laughs> the guy blocked me on Twitter. Um, hell with him. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, he's also written me a couple of nasty emails, but that's all right. Um, I don't want to be friends with everybody. Um but they're doing the incredible things they're doing at HF without that crossover with football. But just imagine if an enlightened football coach ever took that football job there with that track staff, if they started working together, maybe football goes 14 and oh instead of 11 and two. And, and then the, the track team, we would just have to send them to, to the NCAAs or something because they'd be out of our class. It's
0: going to be fun to watch and see how, you know, what they do as a staff because i i just remember when when he got the job as a distance coach i was like what <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm happy i'm in 2a now
1: yes.
0: if east st louis would go back up to 3a i'd be even happier to be in 2a but
1: <laughs> yes yes i wish i was in 2a now let's just say that
0: uh, uh 2a uh, just real quick one of the the, the most interesting and you, you talked about it in one of your articles. I remember we were watching the final for the four by four and the top two teams were Eureka and East St. Louis. And I just remember thinking, I'm like, how are they in the same class? Oh, right. You know what and, and I'm like, that's just, that is, that just blows my mind. And, you know, here I am kind of in the middle with my 585 or whatever it is in enrollment, but I'm just, I just remember thinking, I'm like, you know, and I, re, and I know, you know, there used to be only two classes. So maybe I guess I should consider myself lucky, but um, I just remember watching that four by four. I'm like, why are these two teams running against each other? That just seems crazy. That just doesn't. Seem you know, and crazy. it was one of the greatest
1: races. They they both ran faster times than the three A did in the well, four by four. It was unbelievable. I thought Eureka had a chance, and I'm a good friend with Eureka's coach, and uh, yeah, you know, and, and you know, I really believe that Illinois track and field was much better when it was, you know, like a two-class system. And mm-hmm. it was about 650 or so is the cutoff. Uh, because because when it was a two-class system, it just didn't seem like, I mean, the only arguably team that was too good for Class A was Chicago Leo. You know, mm-hmm. you still have some private schools um, that are real small uh, mm-hmm. that that <laughs> that have... A crazy um, um, genetic pool of athletes. Uh, but overall, I thought class A in the two class system did not have any of those crazy things going on, like East St. Louis run against Eureka. Uh, once, we, once we went to the three class system, there were a ton of stupid things going on in, in that middle class.
0: What I'd like to end on, what's next for you? You know, it's called the Coach Growth Podcast because, as coaches, you know, we're always supposed to we want to grow and learning it better. How is Tony Holler going to grow at age 61?
1: Well, I, I think I still. I, this year was a good year for me, even though we only got to be in track for you know like five or six weeks, um, because it proved to me that I still wanted to coach. You know, I, I wasn't sure when I gave up teaching whether or not you know, coaching would, I'd feel like a foreigner in my own school, but I didn't, I, I, I loved it. I, I was more fresh coming to practice every day. I tell you, I don't know about you, but uh, yeah, I mean, like when I was teaching five chemistry classes every day, I was a little tired going into practice every day. And, uh, and I didn't feel that way. So I think I'm going continue coaching. I still love uh, producing content. I'm gonna submit a simply faster article in the next couple of days. I just uh met with Chris I, I mentioned that I met, met with Chris Corfus yesterday for lunch uh and we spent an hour and a half talking. We uh, I've had three proposals. Uh one is to put a a shit ton of things on the complete track and field um under Latif Thomas, you know, mm-hmm. like you know, some type of you know, like extensive feed the cats, you know, uh, type of stuff. Uh, And then coaching tube is trying to get Chris and I to produce a certification course, um, similar to how mummies, how mummy made a hundred thousand dollars last year. So the air raid certification course um, on coaches tube and the CEO of coaches tube thinks that feed the cats could be, Feed the Cats certification could be like Air Raid certification. Mm-hmm. That that there's such a huge interest in especially football and especially Texas football right now about the you know how how to have a sprint based football team. So I got that going on. Then there's a guy from Ireland who wants to develop a Feed the Cats website with a message board with uh, like a monthly subscription thing. And I just feel like I I already have a website. I got TFC, um, my my message board is Twitter. I already have that. Um, um, I don't think I want uh, what I do to feel like a job. So I don't think I'm going to do the Ireland thing. And um, Chris and I think we're we're actually going to invent a feed the cats certification thing through Coaches Tube, um, where we put you know, repackaged stuff, you know, like really good information out there for, we, we just think coaches too might reach a ton of people that have never heard of us. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's our direction right now, but who knows, you know, it's uh, we might all die of COVID tomorrow. So.
0: Um, what do you, what are your, you know, do you have any final imparting wisdom for a, uh, young 20 something new track coach or football coach, you know, what, what are your final words that you want to resonate with
1: the audience? Uh, you know, I mean, I hate to get sappy or something, but it's, 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 all about, you know, about creating positive, loving things, you know, by loving, I'm not talking about romance or something. I'm talking about, you know, if you don't love uh, your teaching situation, fix it, change it. If you don't love your coaching change it you know like find a way to make it something that you enjoy and you know want to work in or or stop doing it um and then you know try to develop programs where you know like i always ask myself would my kids come to my chemistry class if they didn't have to and my answer was yeah i think they would which means I must be doing something right where you care enough. You're not just jamming curriculum down kids' throats. You care enough to make your class into a class that kids want to be there. Um, do kids want to be in my track practice? Yes. Well, if the answer is no, then let's start feeding the cats or something. Let's let's do something where they like it. And then you can say the same thing with your family. Or are you somebody that's looking for things uh, to occupy your time so you don't have to go home? there's a lot of coaches are like that. They would rather sit in the coach's office till eight o'clock at night than to go home to their wife and kids. Well, if that's the case and you need to fix it, you know, that, that you, you need to have a positive outlook on tomorrow. And it's not just like, Oh, I'm going to be positive today. No, you have to actually do things that create positive vibes. Um, I don't think any coach can be happy if he's not happy at home, you know, so, so all those things. And, and the last thing is, damn, stay healthy, you know, get out and work out, walk, jog, lift. You look at Brad Dixon, you know, he, he power lifts every day at five thirty in the morning. Right. You know, that's awesome. You know, he, and, and he tweets it about it, which means he inspires other people. So I think that's a great message.
0: Where can, uh, where can people find you? I mean, you're, you're huge on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, we'll still pee in track right
1: right, it's uh, at PNTrack on twitter um yeah that that's I only have one platform, you know like I don't have Instagram or anything, um just Twitter, uh my wife won't let me get on Facebook you know uh, and and for good reason, yeah whatever uh, and then um uh my website is PNTrack.com dot com uh and you know easy to find. I'm probably the only guy you can Google Tony holler and find his cell phone and his email, you know, it's at the bottom of all my articles. So yeah, sometimes I get random calls uh, from people and that's okay. Sometimes I'm able to answer it right away and talk to them. Uh, So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely out there.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Twitter, obviously you've got TFC, uh, TFC website. You can find your articles on simply faster on um, the ITCA website, uh, is there any others that I'm missing?
1: Yeah, I, I don't put stuff on ITCA anymore, but a lot of my old stuff is on that, that ITCA website. You can just by googling my name, you know, you you can find articles that you're looking for. But I forgot to say about trackfootballconsortium.com. It's the longest damn domain name in the history of the world. Um, trackfootballconsortium.com. By the way. When I was looking into buying a feed the cats domain name, two thousand five hundred to own feedthecats.com, so screw that, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's there's my one chance of being famous, and it's too expensive. But um, so anyway, yeah, the trackfootballconsortium.com website has hundreds of articles, um, and it has uh, all. Of everything that's ever been presented it in the last five years at feed the cats, you can buy for like $15 per video. And then Chris and I did a ton of webinars in the last eight weeks. And those webinars can be purchased there as well.
0: Awesome. Well,
1: coach, thanks for your time.
0: Um, I got a lot out of this. I know everyone that's listening is going to get a lot out of this. So thank you so much for spending your morning with us. I appreciate it.
1: Coach has been fun and very unique too. I, I, every podcast just the fact that you're from a smaller school and and you know a young coach and all that stuff Um, i did a podcast two days ago with a football coach from new york and i think the content was a hundred percent different than Mm -hmm. than this content with that's good
0: yeah absolutely um so thanks again i look forward to continuing to you know grow and follow Feed the Cats and all the things you put out there. Thank you so much. Anyone listening to this, do not feel afraid to reach out to Tony. I can personally say that he's never, you know, he had never met me, but he responded to a Twitter DM very quickly with, uh, you know, I think I, I remember last year I asked you about a warm up for football and you responded in a couple of hours and you're like, here's a link to an article. And it was just like, Oh my gosh, you actually, that's that's
1: actually a slow response because (laughs) I I think my, you know, you get those damn things on your phone saying how much time you spend on your phone every day. Let's just say that I'm not going to disclose how many (laughs) hours a day I am. Like they talk about teenagers being addicted to their phone. Mm -hmm. I'm on my phone way too much. So yeah, I get back to people quick.
0: Well, thanks again, Tony. And look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Coach, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or got
0: something out of it, please leave a rating and a review. Lastly, follow me on Twitter at Coach McGacky. That's M-C-G-H-G-H-Y. And stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks.